This morning I've entitled this, and they shall see his face. And I know I've said this more than one time that this is my favorite verse in the Bible, but this is my favorite verse in the Bible. And um, I don't believe in coincidences. We ran out of bulletins this last week. I had the message done. The bulletins came in, and my title for the message is, and they shall see his face. You guys want to take out your bulletins and just see what the scripture verse says on it? And they shall see his face. And I don't take that as a coincidence at all. I believe the Lord has his hands in big things, but even in, um, even in the little things. Um, next week, I'm not going to be here. I'll be gone for one Sunday. And um, we got some Texan coming up here named Chris Quintana. And uh, he's going to be filling in uh, next week. I think he's also going to be on Q90, Stand Up for the Truth. So that's something uh, to look forward to. It'll be good to have Chris up. Um, Let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 22. It is the last chapter in the Bible. Paul already read um, all 21 verses. I thought it would be good seeing that we're um, at the very end of the word of God. And I'm gonna take just a little bit of time and show you just how unique this book is above any other book that's ever been. Um, I wanna give you a little history There are 66 books written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years in three different languages on three different continents. Uh, What's more, this collection of books shares, number one, a common storyline, the creation, the fall, and redemption of God's people. A common theme, God's universal love for all humanity. And a common message, salvation is available to all who will repent of their sins and commit to following God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. In addition to sharing these um, things in common, these 66 books contain no historical errors, or contradictions, and I'm gonna make that a big part of our study this morning, what I just said. Uh, God's word truly is an amazing collection of writers, and it could only have been knit knit together by the Lord himself. The book of Revelation is special. Um, In chapter one, verse three, It says, blessed is he who reads the words of this book. None of the other 65 books says that. Read me, I'm special. You'll be blessed if you read the book of Revelation. Having said that, it's also the time of Jacob's trouble. And um, up to this chapter, as we went through last week, uh, the New Jerusalem, The New Jerusalem seems to be all mineral, no vegetable. It appears, its appearance is as the dazzling display of a fabulous jewelry store. We wonder if there's no soft grass to sit upon, no green trees to enjoy, uh, no water to drink or food to eat. However, there are uh, introduced in this chapter, The Elements, which will add a sort of a softer tone as we talk about living water, the tree of life, bears fruit. Um, so I guess when we get into our new homes, that we'll still have the capacity to eat, and that should make a lot of you very happy. <laughs> <laughs> but it looks like it's all fruits and vegetables, as far as I can tell, but who knows? Uh, We're introduced to verse one with that little bit of a background. Um, 
we'll look at verses one and two that deal with uh, uh, living water and also uh, the tree of life. So let's read verses one and two. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, in the middle of the street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, singular, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. Now, I'll come back and and we'll look at each one of these separately. First of all, let's look back to the tree of life where it is first introduced. It only appears in Genesis and it only appears in Revelation. So turn with me to Genesis chapter three and let me draw your attention to verse 20. Adam and Eve have both sinned. God has pronounced a curse upon the woman, the serpent, and the man. And um, as a result of the curse of the man, he now would have to labor and toil, it says in verse 19. And, um, but in verse 20 it says, and Adam called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God, made tunics of skin and clothed him. Now there's a whole Bible study right here. Um, First of all, they were innocent. I believe they were clothed in light. And when Eve ate, she sinned. And um, my personal opinion is that light was disappeared and she knew she was naked. And um, Adam hadn't eaten yet of of, um, the tree of the good of knowledge and evil. And when he saw her, he knew something was very different. Something had changed. And in the New Testament, it tells us that Jesus is a type of Adam, or Adam is a type of Jesus. And the question is, well, how so? I believe that Adam loved Eve so much, he knew she ate of that tree. He knew she was going to die. And I think that was more than Adam could handle. So he partook of the fruit himself to become like her so that um, he loved her. He had greater love as no man than this. He'd lay down his life for, in this case, his wife. Well, that's how Jesus is a type of Adam. We're the bride. He's the groom. We sinned. He didn't. He chose of his own free will to go to the cross Fully God, fully fully human. Why? For the love that was set before him, for the joy that was set before him, he did it. So anyway, in verse 20, um, they're clothed in um, a tunic of skin. And I bring this up because when they realized they were naked, they tried to cover themselves up with fig leaves, remember? Remember? And it's a picture of man trying to cover up his own sin, which you can't do. Good place for an amen. You just can't do it. There has to be the shedding of blood. In order for animal skin to be placed on Adam and Eve, blood had to be shed. And I think it's one of the first pictures, a type, so to speak, of um, blood being shed in order for them to be acceptable in God's eyes and being covered. Verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. Notice the plurality. To know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and eat also of the tree of life. Now this is the first time it it appears in the Bible. And, And eat and live forever. Therefore, The Lord God sent 
him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. And so he drove out the man, and he placed a cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden with a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. They were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And the Lord did not want them to get back in unless they get their hands on this tree that evidently had the capacities to cause eternal life. And to have eternal life in this fallen state is why the angel with the flaming sword turning every which way, they were not allowed back in. So I bring you here, it's the only place it appears It was in the Garden of Eden, but now here it is again in uh, the new Jerusalem. And now we find, um, let's go to another place that is made reference. It is made reference uh, in my mistake. Let's go to uh, Revelation chapter 3, chapter 2. Revelation 2 to the church of Ephesus. Uh, this is such an important verse in, in, in light of um, head knowledge versus heart knowledge and works and our motive for doing them. Ephesus, Ephesus had it all going, but they left their first love. And the Lord says, you either repent or else. I'm gonna come and remove my candlestick. What does that mean? How many old timers here? I always get myself in trouble when I do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Remember Peter and Gordon. Remember there that one song, I won't live in a world without love? I don't care what you say. I'm not going to stay in a world without love. And whenever I heard that verse, I thought of this verse here. Um, I'm not going to stay in a church where there's no love. You can have all these programs going and doing all this stuff. But if, if um, it's not about love, then the Lord is saying, I don't care what you say. I'm not staying in this church if, it's, if, if the love isn't there. But then he goes on in verse 7. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes. Now this is important in the days in which we live. Because there's so much pressure. People are losing their jobs. Um, Men's prayer. Two or three people brought up prayer requests for people that took their own lives. And these are just the things we're hearing about. And um, people just do not know what to do. So the pressures are there. So the idea here of um, to him who overcomes, I can't stress this enough, the importance, as it says in Hebrews, as you see the day approaching, um, don't forsake the fellowship of the saints and do it that much more as you see the day approaching. I believe the Lord is coming soon. As it says in Revelation, that's our prayer. Come Lord Jesus. Another good place for an amen. But notice what he says, if you do, there are, I'm gonna make a big point of the letters number seven as we get towards the end of our study. Uh, There are seven letters to seven churches, seven titles that Jesus uses different for every one of the churches. Um, This one, the title in Ephesus is These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Seven is all over the place. And there's seven different promises. The promise to the church of Ephesus is I will give him to eat from the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So here's one of the promises. We find it in Revelation We find it as a promise given to um, the church. So that's the tree of life. And um, as far as the living waters go, um, that is also um, 
something I want to touch on. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 47. Give you a moment to get there. In the context of Ezekiel 47, it's actually talking about the millennial reign. And that would be before the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. But the similarities are so striking that I think the waters here could be one and the same. And let me say before I go any farther, I cannot be dogmatic about what I'm about to read to you. Except that it says here, uh, let's pick it up in verse um, 1, Ezekiel 47, the river from the temple. So this would be the millennial temple. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. And from the front of the temple, faced east, the water was flowing from the right side of the temple, south to the altar. He brought me out by the way of the north gate. He led me around on the outside of the outer gate that faces east, and there was water running out of the right side. Then when the man went out to the east with a line in his hand, he measured 1,000 cubics, and he brought me through the water, and the water came up to my ankles. Again he measured 1,000, and it brought me up to, um, the water came up to my knees. And again he measured 1,000, and he brought me through, and the water came up to my waist. Again he measured 1,000, and it was a river. I could not cross over, for the water was too deep. Water in which one must swim, a river that could not be crossed. And he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? And then he brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. And when I returned there along the banks of the river, there were many trees on one side and the other. Then he said to me, this water flows towards the eastern region, goes down into the valley and enters the sea. The sea in reference here we call the Dead Sea. Nothing lives in the Dead Sea. When it reaches the sea, its waters are healed. So no life, and then when these waters from the temple reach it, they're healed. And it shall be that every living thing that moves wherever the river goes will live. There will be a very great multitude of fish because these waters go there, for they will be healed, and everything will live wherever the water goes. It shall be that fishermen will be standing by it from En Now, En is still there. Um, I have never visited En It's called the place of the, the wild goats, uh, the Hybex, and they have cooties there. A cootie looks like a groundhog. Best way I could describe it. But I have never been there in my many trips without seeing these goats. David wrote about them 3,000 years ago, and they're still there 3,000 years later. And now it's a, it's a tourist place, and it has a beautiful waterfalls when you get to the end of the end of the trail. But it is one of the places that David hid from Saul in one of these caves. So the Bible study that we usually have there as we're walking down this, what they call a wadi, is there's caves, and in one of those caves, that's where David was hanging out and hiding from Saul. Remember when Saul came in to relieve himself and David sort of crept up at him and cut a piece of his garment off. And then when he went out and he was out of sight, Saul! (laughs) And he looks up and there's David. And he says, why do you hunt me like a flea? I'm not your enemy. I could have killed you. I could have taken you out. And he repents. Saul had 3,000 men with him. And um, and for a moment, uh, Saul was softened. 
And uh, he said, okay, we're leaving. David loves me. But this all happened at this, this place. I mean, talk, talking about the Bible really coming to life. And it's relatively unchanged after all these years. So um, they're fishing in a place where there is no fish. Our bus driver, when, when we're going down to uh, where, when we stay at the, our hotel on the Dead Sea, he likes to mess with us. And he goes, a porpoise, a porpoise. <laughs> and everybody's <laughs> looking out the window, and he's getting a good chuckle out of it because there's no porpoises in the Dead Sea. There will be someday. And they will be places for the spreading of the nets that the fish will be the same kind as the fish of the Great Sea. Now, the Great Sea is the Mediterranean. Uh, Exceedingly many. But then it says, but its swamps and marshes will not be healed. They will be given over to the salt. Um, Along the banks of the river are the side and it and will grow all kinds of trees used for food. These leaves will not wither, special trees. Their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their waters flow from the sanctuary. Now notice this last verse. Their fruit will be food and their leaves for medicine. Go back to Revelation verses one and two. And what do we read concerning the leaves of the tree in verse, um, are from the waters uh, and now the tree of life the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. Um, I can speculate. There seems to be a comparison. The, these, these waters have the ability to heal whatever they touch. And the question that comes up, if heaven is perfect, then why is there any need um, for the healing of the nations. Now remember, the church is living in the new Jerusalem, but there's also a new world where other people live. And this is one of those places where I wanna say, I don't know. (laughs) I've read commentaries, people who have speculated on this. One commentator said, well, our bodies are going to be a little bit different than the bodies for those on earth. It says that the kings of the earth will bring their glory and honor into it, but they won't live there. We'll live there. We're the bride. These guys are all the John the Baptists. They're friends of the bridegroom. Could it be that there's certain parts of their anatomy that have to have some sort of medicine? I'm just throwing that out to you because that is one Commentators saw it. And um, your thoughts could be just as good. You might not be as much as a commentator as he is. You might just be a tater. I don't know. Commentator. I don't know. Anyway, I have no answer for this one. Verse 3 through 5. And there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall see and serve him, and here it is, and they shall see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no night there, no need of lamp, light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. They shall see my face. When I first got saved, um, I wasn't reading the Bible, and this person said, I said, well, what should I read? And so they told me the first book that I should read in the Bible is the book of Revelation. (laughs) And I started reading it, and I didn't understand any of it, and I believed all of it. Are you with me on that one? I mean, this stuff was so far out. Oh, there you go, slipping back to the 60s again. Uh, It was so far beyond um, that it had to be true. I stayed up all night and read the book of Revelation. But when I got to this verse, and they shall see his face, 
We're not, we're not talking about the Lord Jesus Christ here. We're talking about the Father. And I'll give you my, my proof for that in just a bit. But the very thought, we know that God is light, spirit, and love. And to think for a moment that love has a face, just because it was just so astounding to me that I'm actually gonna see the face of God. First of all, let's establish that no man can see God in these, these bodies. Um, uh, well, first of all, I wanna um, give my reasoning for why it's the face of the Father. Daniel 7, verse nine. Now, here, there's a reference to the ancient of days. Daniel's having a vision, and he says, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the ancient of days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame. Its wheels were a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him, a thousand thousands ministered to him, ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, the books were opened. And I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn, the Antichrist, was speaking. And I watched till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning fire. And as for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Now here, I was watching in the night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming in the cloud of heavens, came to the Ancient of Days. So we have um, the Son of Man, which we'll see in the next verse. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, Then to him, to who? The one who is coming to the ancient of days. To him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, the one which will not be destroyed. As we look at Revelation um, Two, and this unbelievable verse of seeing the face of our heavenly Father is just just totally mind-boggling. Um, let's go back to Revelation verse four. They shall see His face. Then it says, "His name shall be on their forehead." That's interesting. Who else has their name put on their forehead? The Antichrist. The, the, and if you don't do it, um, you die. Now why do I bring this up? Because another word for Antichrist would be an artificial or imitation of Christ. In other words, he's copying what the Father would do. What has he always wanted that the Father had? the worship of 10,000 times 10,000 times 10,000. Not him, but that's what he wanted. And he began to counterfeit the father. And here's one of the cases where it's very, very clear. They shall see his face and um, his name shall be on their forehead. Um, Turn with me to the book of Exodus chapter 33, Genesis and then Exodus. Chapter 33, picking it up in verse um, 18, we have Moses who has turned aside and talked with God and God is calling him at this point. In verse 18 of chapter 33, Um, Moses wants to see God. And so he says, please show me your glory. And then he said, I will make my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. The name that's gonna be put on your forehead. 
I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, notice, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here, in a place by me, uh, you shall stand on the rock. So he's gonna put him in a little cubbyhole of a rock. And uh, so it will be that when my glory passes by, I'm gonna put you in the cliff of the rock and I'm gonna cover you with my hands. In other words, as I'm walking by, Moses, I'm gonna cover your eyes so that you can't see uh, when I pass by. Then I will take my hand away and you will see my back, but my face you shall not see. This is the face of the Father. Um, as it pertains to Jesus in his glorified body. Uh, we'll get into that when we get into the book of Acts. But let me just quote one verse from 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. It says, For now we see in a mirror, dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know even as I have known. We don't understand the depths of this new Jerusalem. Um, things that he's created. Sounds and colors that we have never even imagined before. We only can read about them. We can only see through a glass darkly. But when we're there, we'll have these new bodies which evidently have the capacity of beholding the face of the Father without being destroyed. That's what's being given to us here. All right, back to Revelation chapter 22. We've made it through uh, verse five. Let's pick it up in verse six and seven. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of his holy prophets sent his angel to show his servant the things which must shortly take place. You see anything in the Bible, if it's prophesied, it has to happen. Good place for an amen. Nothing can undo it, nothing. Then he says, behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book, the book of Revelation. Let me just say this. Um, it, It grieves me. Mainline Protestantism, mainline Roman Catholicism do not take a literal view of the book of Revelation. They either allegorize it or they spiritualize it. When um, we were in Israel at Qumran, they refer to some of these writings as wars against um, uh, light and darkness, which is allegorical. In other words, it's not what we're reading literally. Um, And unfortunately, it's not being taught, and the sad truth about it is that most pastors really, unless they've studied it well, don't know it, so they can't teach it. So both mainline Protestantism, that is a large group of people that many of them are saved, amen? And in Roman Catholicism, I believe there's many Catholics that are born again, and um, yet when it comes to this particular book, They allegorize it. And um, here the Lord, and I'm gonna make a big case out of this in just a bit because of uh, just how important this book is in times that we're going through right now. Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down and worshiped before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And then he said to me, see that you do not do that. For I am your fellow servant and of your brother and the prophets and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And we have here in 8 and 9, John's reaction to all that he's seen so far. Imagine taking in and watching the whole book of, of Revelation. Now we're coming to the end of it and it's too much for John. 
He's completely overwhelmed. Um, and it's, it's more than he can handle. And he falls down and worships an angel. Now without exception, <laughs> every time somebody falls down and worships an angel, what does the angel do? He rebukes them. Don't do that. I'm a servant just like you're a servant. Worship God and worship God only. And so here he's reproved. Um, Verse 10 through 13. And he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give everyone according to his works. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Do not seal. Let's go back to... um, um, Do not seal the book and the meaning of the, well, actually, the meaning of the book of Revelation means to reveal. I'm going to ask you to uh, turn with me this time to Daniel chapter 12. I'm pretty sure I got it right this time. Daniel 12, picking it up in verse 9. This is how Daniel ends his book. He had been given all these visions, every world empire, Babylon, Medo-Persian, Grecian, Roman, and the one that we just went through, the Antichrist. And Daniel wanted to know more. And so in verse nine, let's go back to verse eight of chapter 12. Daniel said, although I heard, in other words, I took all this stuff in, I did not understand. Then I said, my Lord, what will be the end of these things? In other words, fill me in. But the Lord said, Daniel, go your way. For the words are closed up and notice, sealed. But then we have the word until. Until the time of the end. Many shall be purified and made white and refined. But the wicked shall do wickedly and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise will understand. Now what is wisdom? We were talking about it in men's prayer just a couple of weeks ago. Wisdom is the fear of the Lord and having actually a reverence for him and not wanting to grieve the Holy Spirit. Unfortunately, we do. Somebody want to give me a sad amen on that one? We do. Things we don't want to do, we do. The things we should do, we don't do. Oh, wretched man that I am. And without God's grace, uh, that's our predicament. And so here we read, Daniel, you're not gonna be able to figure this one out. And it won't be unsealed until, what does it say? The time of the end. So now, as we look at verses 10 and 11 of Revelation 22, um, uh, 10 said, do not seal the words of the prophecy for the time is at hand. Okay, it's been, the book of Revelation is unsealing. And John gets to be a participant of it. And um, it has been sealed. I believe it's been personally sealed well, there, were, there were always a handful of people that believed Israel would be, come back and be a nation, but they were really in a minority. Um, but basically, un, until Israel became a nation, I think that's the greatest sign for the church knowing that we're living in the last days. The parable of the fig tree clearly says the generation that sees Israel become a nation will see the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. And I can't dance around those words. I believe the generation that sees Israel return is gonna see it all happen. 
That was 72 years ago. What does that mean? My friends, it means it's very, very late. And the coming of the Lord is, is coming soon. 12 through 16 tells us, and behold, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me to give everyone according to his work. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter into the gates of the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. Outside has to be in reference here those that have been cast into outer darkness or hell because that's eternal too and that's a place also. Then 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. Uh, So what we have here in this uh, 12 through 16, the Bible actually opens with God on the scene. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. It concludes with him on the scene in full control of his own. He suffered, he paid a price, and he died. But the victory and the glory are his, and he is satisfied, as it says in Isaiah 53. He puts it like this. He will see the travail of his soul. That's the father seeing what the son is going through. And, it, and, it shall, and he shall be satisfied. In Isaiah 53 it says, It pleased the father to bruise the son because of what it would purchase. That would be you <laughs> and that would be me. Uh, By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. Notice it doesn't say all, because you have to choose. The ball's in your court. The truth has been laid out. The gospel has been given. Many will accept it. Well, I guess I have to change that around. Wide is the gate that leads to destruction. Many there will be that will find it. Narrow is the gate that leads to life and few there will be that will find it. For he shall bear their iniquity. And then he's called the offspring of David. And here we have this, the root of the offspring of David, which connects him with the Old Testament. But he is the bright of the morning star. Verse 17 is really just an invitation. And the spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who is thirsty, come. And whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. So that brings us to verses eight and nine. And um, I'm gonna spend a little time on this um, because people have gotten so far away from verse by verse, solid biblical teaching. And I'm going to do a little sidetrack here in 18 and 19. 18 says, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this prophecy of this book, God will take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. May I ask you a question? Do you think the Lord takes this book literally? To what extent? You better not mess with it. You better not add one word to it. You better not take one word out of it, because if you do, then you're gonna become part of the plagues rather than the blessings. I mean, this is how the Bible ends, my friends. And rather than just quoting one verse, you all know it, 2 Timothy 3.16, 
All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, and in righteousness. But I want to take it a step farther and give you a challenge and maybe even some homework. I want to introduce you. I believe it can be proven mathematically because of a Russian man named Dr. Ivan Panin. I want to give you a little bit of his history before I tell you what he did for 50 years of his life. He was born in Russia on December 12, 1855. Panin was exiled from Russia after spending a number of years studying in Germany. He went to the United States where he became an outstanding lecturer on literal uh, criticism. Panin was known as a firm agnostic, so well known that when he discarded his agnosticism and he accepted the Christian faith, the newspapers carried headlines telling of his conversion. He was a mathematical genius. Um, he became a Christian at Harvard uh, in, in the United States. Dr. Pannon found his proof of what I'm about to explain to you. Um, and he used the Bible, but he only used the oldest versions of the Bible. Uh, Dr. Pannon found his proof in some of the oldest and most accurate manuscripts, the received Hebrew text and the Westcott and Hort text. In the original languages of the Bible, mostly Hebrew and Greek, there is no separate symbols for numbers, letters of the alphabet, but they are used to indicate numbers. In other words, there's a mathematical, there's 22 Um, letters in the Hebrew alphabet. But every one of those letters has a numerical value attributed to it. So the number is the same as a letter. But every letter has a different number contributed to it. Are you guys hanging in there with me so far? Okay, good. Uh, So now he's saved. And what he, and I'm, I'm, there's volumes and volumes and volumes uh, and I, I can only scratch the surface here, but it's to make a very, very important point. The numerical value of a word is the sum total of all of its letters. It was curiosity that first caused Dr. Pannon to begin toying with the numbers behind the text. Sequences and patterns began to emerge. These created such a stir in the heart uh, of the of the Russian that he dedicated, catch this, the next 50 years of his life, painstakingly combing through the pages of the Bible, compiling 50,000 pages of manuscripts of his research. He was totally dedicated to um, this line of work. And um, of course, His work is exhaustive, unless you want to stay here for the next 50 years. (laughs) But let let me summarize it with just one number, the number seven, which is, let's take the number seven as an illustration of the way the pattern works. Seven is the most prolific of the mathematical series which binds scripture together. The very first verse of the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1 contains over 30 different combinations of seven. This verse has seven Hebrew words. If you read it in English, it doesn't, but if you read it in Hebrew, there are seven words there. Having a total of 28 letters, well, 28 is four by seven. The numerical value of three nouns, God, heaven, and earth, totals 777. Any number in triplicate express complete ultimate of total meaning. Also tightly sealed up with sevens are the genealogy of Jesus, 
the account of the virgin birth, the resurrection. Seven occurs as a number 187 times in the Bible. That's 41 times seven. The phrase sevenfold occurs seven times and 70 occurs 56 times, seven times eight. In the book of Revelation, seven positively shines out. There are seven golden lampstands, seven letters to the seven churches, a book sealed with seven seals, seven angels standing before the Lord, seven trumpets, seven thunders, seven last plagues. In fact, there are over 50 occurrences of the number seven in the book of Revelation alone. Divisible by seven, there are 21 Old Testament writers whose names appear in the Bible. That's three times seven. The numerical value of of their names is divisible by seven. Of these 21, seven are named in the New Testament. Moses, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Hosea, there you go, Donna, Hosea, and Joel. The numerical value of these numbers is 1,554 or 222 times seven. David's name is found 1,134 times or 162 times seven. God's seal also pervades creation as though it was woven into the very fabric of nature. The Bible has declared Man's years to be three score and ten, 70 years. Ooh, that's kind of scary when I think of that. <laughs> Actually, I should be looking forward to it. Actually, I am. <laughs> the development of the human embryo is in exact periods of sevens or 28 days, four times seven. Medical science tells us the human body is renewed cell for cell every seven years. We're told that the pulse beats slower every seven days as if it were in accord with the seventh day of rest proclaimed in the Genesis creation week. And God formed man of the dust of the ground, Genesis 2-7, Science confirms the human body is made up of a, the, the same 14 elements, two times seven, found in your average handful of dust. The light of the sun is made up of seven distinct colors as shown in the rainbow. In music, there are seven distinct notes. Do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, and then you start over again on do. And... The octaves, uh, seven distinct notes, which climax at a chord or octave at the beginning of a new seven. In almost all animals, the incubation or pregnancy period is divided by seven. Seven is often referred to as God's seal or the number of spiritual perfection or completion. The works of Dr. Ivan Pannon have been put before the experts many times. Remember, he was a mathematical geniuses, and the guys that he hang with were mathematical geniuses too. Dr. Patton once challenged nine noted um, rationalists and Bible critics through the medium of the New York Sun paper, November 9th, 1899. He dared them, I would say he triple dog dared them, to publicly refute or give an explanation for a few of his presented facts. Ford made, four of them made a lame, lame attempt. The, the rest were silent. Dr. Pannon issued a challenge throughout leading newspapers all over the world asking for a natural explanation or rebuttal of the facts and if they could, he'd give him $100,000. Now, $100,000 in 1899 is a whole lot more than it is worth today. And then it goes on to say, not a single person accepted. 
Now, I would do it just for the fact that I might make $100,000. My friends, um, what I've touched on here, he has 50 years of his life dedicated to. He has 50,000 manuscripts where he was consumed because as the scripture says, Jesus said, Matthew 5, 18, for assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law that is fulfilled. A jot or a tittle. We would say dotting and I are crossing the T. What are you saying, Dwight? I'm saying you can't take one jot or a tittle out of the Bible without throwing away something that is perfect in its conception. You can't take anything out of it, nothing. So I'm, I'm ending this because I want to make a personal note at this, at this time. And I want to go back to verses 18 and 19. Now with what I just told you, I challenge you, be a Brian. Google Dr. Ivan Pannon. I scratched the surface on his work. 18 says, for I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy of this book, God shall take away his part of the book of life from the holy city and the things which are written in this book. On a personal note, to any person here or any person who is watching right now online or a pastor or a Bible teacher who think that the book of Revelation is only an allegory or it spiritualizes it and does not take it literally you better think again. You better think again. And if any probability that Pannon's work is true and they're explaining it away as some um, allegory or whatever, when to me it's probably one of the most important books in the Bible. Good place for an amen. So, This is a strong warning. The Bible ends with a warning. Don't mess with this book that we just studied this morning. Then it closes at verses 20 and 21. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. These are the last words of our Lord. Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And before I say the amen, I want you to think on this. Someday, you will see the face of God. God is love. And you are going to behold what love looks like. Now we can read the last verse again. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, your word tells us that your ways are past finding out. And the very thought or notion that someday we will be able to gaze upon the one. Our prayer as we close, that what might be longing for in this world, help us realize it's temporal and it's all gonna burn. And it says that when we receive our crowns, it's not gonna mean a whole lot to us because we're just gonna throw them at your feet anyway. Lord, all we really want is you, to be able to behold you, to be considered the bride to our bridegroom, and um, to be able to behold the ancient of days. Uh, We thank you for your word so much. And I pray that uh, this morning, for any who think, well, not 
all of us the word of God, that they better think twice about this whole thing and, and do their own research uh, because heaven and earth will pass away, but not this book. So we thank you this morning, Lord, as we finish the Bible and we pray we go, you would go before us as we get back into the book of Acts and, and um, continue to stay in your word chapter by chapter and verse by verse until you do come quickly. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.